Good morning, dear friends. Let's open in prayer, and then we'll continue in our studies of the solas this morning. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for your grace. Lord, as we focus on grace this morning with regard to our salvation, Lord, may we be ever more thankful for what has been granted to us, the faith to believe, the ability to look at your living word um, and actually know that it's your word and believe that it's your word. Lord, grant us greater faith to embrace the truths of Scripture as recipients of divine sovereign grace. Lord, may you be blessed and honored. May your people be encouraged in Christ's name. Amen. Um, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. That'll be the text. will be our main focus this morning. Um, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, but last time we were together, last week, um, we looked at... Sola Scriptura, uh, the fact that we believe and teach the Bible is the only written divine revelation of God. Sola Scriptura is the application of belief that the Scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith for the Lord's church. The Bible is inerrant, it's complete, it's authoritative, and it's all sufficient. So affirming as we do, sola and tota scriptura, sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone, tota scriptura, meaning you know, all of scripture, it's our duty as, as heirs, heirs of the Reformation, to reject what we believe to be traditions that are not based on the perspicuity of scripture. That is the plain, clear teaching of scripture. So our desire, um, quite simply, is to be biblical. Not forcing a particular tradition into or onto the text, the biblical text. So being, being reformed in our soteriology, being reformed in our ecclesiology, um, soteriology being the doctrine of salvation, ecclesiology, you know, how we do church, so to speak, and being at the same time adherence to confessors' uh, baptism, that is, believers' baptism, um, that circulates, as I said last time, I touched on this briefly, I'm going to finish up this, the sola scriptura part before we get to sola gratia. There's this historical tension placed on us, uh, even a kind of stigma um, to this very day by some of our uh, reformed, albeit ill-bred, um, reformed friends who think... Some of you have heard this, even on the golf course. I heard a guy out the other day golfing with a Reformed guy. He says, well, isn't this interesting? One Reformed guy and three Baptists. <laughs> even though we, refu- we don't wave the banner, we're Reformed. We don't wave the, wave the banner, we're Calvinists. You don't see that on our website. Um, and even though we don't, there's still this stigma. So to help equip you in understanding you know, how to respond to our dear, beloved brothers who say, you're not really reformed because you don't baptize babies. Reality is, the reformers didn't quite reform far enough away from the particular arm of Catholicism known as pedo-baptism. 
Now, this isn't to beat a dead horse. I beat the horse because it's not dead yet. Quite simply, friends, infant baptism is a holdover from the magisterial state church system. Infant baptism in reform circles is taught to be a replacement sign for the Abrahamic sign of circumcision. Some of you know that, some of you don't. Now, that's a romantic idea. But scripture never makes that connection. It's simply not there. There's not even an inferential reference to support it scripturally. I understand the reasoning behind it. It is complicated as the formula is. It devalues the issue. Make no mistake. Believers, men and women in Christ are spiritual sons of Abraham by faith, undoubtedly, and they are, we are, the spiritual Israel of God. But circumcision was not a sign of personal faith. We live under the new covenant, amen? In Hebrews 8.13, the scripture says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, what? Obsolete, outdated, archaic. So the, the cry of the Reformation was not tradition, 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 or the fathers, the fathers, but scripture, scripture, scripture. You know, guys like me at this time, in the time of the Reformation, who would have stood against the tradition of paedo-baptism, at worst, would have possibly been drowned by the dear reformers. Because you want water, we'll give you water. And they put you under. That would have been the worst. At least, uh, I would have not been overly welcomed in their churches. Yet again, beloved, very important to understand, being part of a magisterial reformation where the office of the state had a right of authority within the church, and it did, and the church relied on the state to enforce discipline over the church, actually opposing and punishing what the church claimed to be heresy. It's not difficult to understand the pressure and why the reformers, some of them chose to either ignore and others waffling on the issue of infant baptism in what was an extremely traditionalized sacral society of infant christening. One fun fact for you. Even Roman Catholic theologians point out the dilemma of Protestant paedo-baptists who baptize babies without a sacramental theology. That is to say, minus the belief that baby baptism actually creates faith, a, a, a conferral grace or a bestowal of grace. Because that, though Catholics believe that, Protestants don't. Although you could go to some Protestant baptisms, and it would sound like they believe it. But Catholics say, hey, if you don't believe that it's a conferral of grace, why do you do it? That's a good question. But you think about the pressure of that day. You think about churches today under the much less stressful pressure of culturally driven political correctness. Churches that have caved 
because of pressure, to egalitarianism. That is the pressure of the feminist movement. So this pressure, under this pressure, the church caves to ordaining women, recognizing women as pastors, preachers, and elders, a role distinctly set aside in Scripture for who? Men. Today, churches crumble under the pressure of ordaining homosexuals or lesbians to the office of pastor-preacher. Many so-called churches are are preaching a gospel of self-confidence, self-esteem, health and wealth, offering this product of self-gratifying consumerism. It's pressure. So, needless to say, there is always the need for what's referred to as semper reformanda. That is, the church always what? Always reforming. Always seeking to hear more clearly and walk more closely with their Lord. So, as fallen men, we're prone towards forgetfulness. We're prone towards conformity of man-made traditions. It's an easy thing to do. Things that contradict sola and tota scriptura. We can go as far back as Jeremiah and read these words. Jeremiah 7, verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways. Reform your actions. And I will let you live in this place. Actually, you could translate that. I may allow you to live in this place. Much of the church is in trouble today by trouble brought on us by us. So the reformation of the 16th century came about by God's grace for the purpose of refocusing God's church and bringing her back to her first love, according to the scripture. But men being men, (laughs) do not remember well those great theological treaties and speeches that were given to turn the church back to God, back to the basics. The solas. So knowing this about men, the reformers came up with five solas to help us remember. Sola scriptura, sola gratia, solo Christo, sola fide, and soli deo gloria. Five slogans in Latin, known as the solas, born out of the great reformation that are just as essential for us to this very day. To call God's people to remember, to re-implement as required the five solas of the Reformation. And what do they do? They're designed to draw our gaze back to the author of Scripture, Almighty God. Back to his word. These are the basics of the faith, which keep us rooted in the faith. And it keeps our witness uncomplicated. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Now, I don't know if you've heard of the name Vince Lombardi. That's the name engraved on the Super Bowl trophy every year. And then, you know, given to the championship team 
of the national football team every year. That he is the coach of the legendary Green Bay Packers, who won the first two Super Bowls. Vince Lombardi had the skill of bringing the best out of men. And at the beginning of each spring training session, he would come out with a football in his hand, hold it up in the air, and say, Gentlemen, this is a football. (laughs) And he put it down on the ground. And then he would move on to explain the fundamental objectives of the game of football. Everyone was required to attend from the greenest rookie to the most seasoned veteran. But men being men take for granted the game of football because they know what a football is. So Vince Lombardi would use this as a reminder. He'd go back to the basics, to the fundamentals of football, reminding them that they're football players. And this is how you are to do what you are to do. This is what you're required to do. The main objective being win. Win. These are fundamental reminders for us. Number one, who God is, who we are, why we're here, and how we're to live. The solas, fundamentals. So today, we move from sola scriptura to sola gratia. That is, salvation is by what? Grace what? Is it? Do you believe that? Is salvation truly by grace alone? The words sola gratia mean that human beings have no claim upon God whatsoever. That is, God owes us nothing except just just punishment for our, our many, many sins, for our willful rebellion. So consistent reformed soteriology, soteriology meaning the doctrine of salvation, teaches us, the Bible in other words, teaches us that salvation is all of God. It's all of God because salvation is all of God. It is therefore all of grace provided by God alone. As we will see, Salvation is the monergistic work of God. It is the one-way work of God. This is not a synergistic thing. It's not part God, part us. It's monergistic, one-way, sovereign grace. So this revolutionary cry of the Reformation is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. Scripture says right there in Ephesians 2, look at verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. It's grace alone expressed through the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit who brings us to Christ. Releasing us from the bondage of sin, raising us, here it is, from death to life, from spiritual death to life. What can a dead man do in his grave, beloved? Nothing. A dead man can do nothing. Spiritually dead people can do nothing. Outside of the grace of God. So grace alone must be, as it has been, the reformation cry of the 21st century. 
Just as it was back then, it must be today. Okay, it was Jonah delivered from the depths of the sea, from the belly of a great fish prepared by God. Yes, literal fish, big fish created by God for that purpose. From death itself, he is the one who proclaimed salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord. Look at verse 8 of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What's not? The faith to believe. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So no one may boast. So who may boast? No one. Now, saved is an interesting word. It receives a lot of press. But the question that ought to be asked is, what do you mean when you say, I am saved? Saved. Survey says something like this. Well, I'm saved because I chose to believe in Jesus. Most people accept the answer, not realizing how prideful, arrogant, and self-righteous it really is. Now, if confronted and asked, so, can you take credit for some of your salvation? Well, they'll answer, well, that's not quite what I meant. And then attempting to justify themselves, they'll say, well, God's grace fell upon me, and I chose to accept that grace to believe and follow Jesus, just digging a deeper hole for themselves. Okay, question. What did Jesus, the apostles, and the church teach for close to 1,000 years? They taught what Jesus taught. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to Seek and to save the lost. As Os Guinness says, quote, we find God only because we're found by God. For by grace you have been saved, saved meaning spared, rescued, reclaimed, redeemed, and saved from what? I should say, say from who? From whom? From God. You're saved by God, from God. God is just, he's also the justifier. God has saved us from the wrath of himself. God's just punishment. We're saved by God, from God, rescued from the power and the consequence of sin. This is why salvation is so great. You have absolutely nothing to do with it. Ephesians 2 informs us that we are completely passive in the activity of salvation. Many other passages do as well. We're passive in this. I know you're saying, but wait, I believe we're going to get to that. Okay, that is this. Look, there's something that is not only done for us, But something is also done to us. For us and to us. For by grace you have been saved. Now the Bible says, as you may be thinking, well the Bible says that men are called to repent and believe and obey. Well the Bible also says that since the fall of man, all the way back to Adam, he's not only unwilling to do that, but he is unable to do that. He is absolutely and completely impotent, powerless 
to do that which God calls him to do. And why is that? Because we are walking, talking, dead men and dead women. Ephesians 2.1. Go back to chapter 2. And you were what? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you walked as a dead man. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is, the, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by what? Nature. This is our nature. We were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. By nature, that's our nature. We're subject to our nature. Your will, the will that you think is free, is subject to that nature, which means it's chained to a nature that's chained to sin and depravity. You can't free yourself from that. It's impossible. So just as there's a certain inability that's fundamental to a physical corpse. What's fundamental to a corpse in the grave? The inability to live and breathe. Amen? So too, a spiritually dead person has no intrinsic ability to come to God, let alone obey God. Let alone believe God. And that's the, the essence of obedience is belief. We're reminded of Jesus' own words. In John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me. That is, believe in me. It didn't say, he didn't say no one may. He said no one can. Unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws him. It's by God's grace alone that any man or any woman can come to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Because it is only through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that they're given life to do so. So it is his, God's, operative, working, effectual grace that turns unbelief into true saving faith. In other words, he actually transforms the will. He does it. He transforms the will that was once subject to our fallen sinful nature. Dead in transgressions and sins. And he gives us life. He enables us to believe. He enables us to trust. He enables us to come to Christ. And interesting that that word drawn there, also translated drag. <laughs> it's the same word used elsewhere. It's used in Acts twenty-one twenty-nine. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. James 2, 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Faith is a gift that is bestowed into and born out of the sinner who's born again. Saved by grace. Because of his great love with which he rescued us. Who were children of wrath. Notice verse 4. Ephesians 2. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace. You have. 
announcement. Again, emphasizing the fact that this is not and cannot be of our own doing. It's a gift of God. Now, another great word in the Bible used to define salvation is redeemed. Redeemed. Okay? Meaning that he bought us back. We were bought back by the actions of another. And what can a dead man or woman do if they're subject to a sinful nature? How can they buy themselves back? How can they pay the price that God requires? They can't. They're already enslaved. They can't buy themselves back. So it's Christ alone, by grace alone, who made the payment for those dead in their sin. So the Bible's clear. It's not that we choose our salvation. We can only respond when our condition is changed. Once the conditions change, then you're able to respond to Christ because you want to. Your want to's been changed. You didn't change your want to. See, now that you have the Spirit of God when you don't want to, and the imperatives of Scripture says you better want to, because you have the Spirit, now you can change your want to. But before you're saved, you have no ability to change your want to. It takes the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit to change your want to of being against Christ and now being for Christ. It's a change in nature. We respond when we're moved from the bondage of sin, taken out from underneath the death sentence of our nature. For the wages of sin is death. So in God's time, Christ came, gave himself up as a substitute for who? For some. For his elect. Well, how do we know who the elect are? We don't. Who do we preach to? Everybody. Who's going to be saved? God's elect. When? When he determines to do so. Look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians. Context, Paul writing the, what? Church, the believers at Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every good spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? Before he created anything. Before the foundation of the earth. That's what it means. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. According to what? What you're going to do? No. According to the purpose of his will. Did he look down the chasm of time and see, oh, I see what Mary's going to do. So based on what Mary's going to do, I now choose Mary. Is that what that means? No. He predetermined. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing we do can merit God's forgiveness. Nothing we do can merit his redemption. We're saved by grace alone. It re- that's what it means, grace alone. Unmerited favor alone. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. Apart from his grace, no one would ever be saved. There's no way. Because since our lost condition, human beings are not capable, capable of winning or seeking out 
God. Let alone cooperating with his grace. You ever hear that? We, we cooperate with his grace. Once you're saved, you're now engaged with him by way of union. And you can either obey or disobey. Okay, but you're given life. That's why. That's the difference once you're in. Before that, you have no ability. There's nothing a spiritual dead man can do. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, remember this in John 3? You must be born, again, literally you must be born from above. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you play any part in your parents' conception of you? No. Did you decide whether you wanted to be male or female? Do you have any say-so? Do you have any say-so on the day that you would be born? What year you would be born? And of course not. We, by comparison, play no part in our spiritual birth. None whatsoever. Again, salvation is the monergistic, one-way work, one source come down to us. It's not synergistic where God plays his part and I play mine. Because if that were true, could you boast? We all have loved ones who don't believe, correct? So let's bring up this loved one of mine. I'm not going to say who it is, but here's my loved one. Let's call him Uncle, Uncle Ray. Uncle Ray comes up. I put my armor on Uncle Ray. And you ask me, why doesn't Uncle Ray believe? Why do you believe? And if I said because I chose to believe in Jesus and Ray hasn't, could I boast? Yes, I could. The Bible says I can't. Because this monergistic work was done to me. Life was created in me. And if I play part in synergistically cooperating with God, I could stand a little bit above Uncle Ray here and say, hey, you know, I chose to accept God's offer. He hasn't. Can I boast? To claim that we do anything in salvation is actually the height of arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance and even considering to place ourselves in the area in which God alone acts. And ignorance of God's word. Which actually means what it says with regard to salvation. It's all grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's grace alone. It's not grace plus something we do. Grace is unmerited favor, amen? So it's not unmerited favor plus my meritorious effort. That's a contradiction. I know this is all elementary to most of you all, but... It's sola gratia, so we go over it. Amen? Enjoy it. Okay, the Roman Catholic Church affirms salvation by grace. Did you know that? But not grace alone. Right, brother? In addition to grace, you must also be a faithful Catholic. 
involving yourself in the sacraments, going to Mass, and working hard to keep the edicts and traditions of the church. And then maybe, just maybe, hopefully, if the church says so, you might be saved. There's a way to live life. A lot of joy there. Arminians. Who, who, Arminians are those who don't, who, who don't hold to a, a Reformation soteriology. Soteriology being the doctrine of salvation. It's the sovereign work of God. Uh, these would be some of my friends, say, in the uh, Calvary Chapel movement. Praise God for the Calvary Chapel movement. Okay? I'm not cutting on that. A lot of my friends from the Calvary Chapel movement, a lot of my friends from the large mass evangelical movement that do like altar calls and things like that, they believe in salvation by grace. But they add one thing to it, and that is our quote-unquote free will or our free choice, synergistically combined with God's grace. Speaking about God's sovereign work in salvation, Paul writes in Romans 9, verse 16. So then, as a matter of fact, I went out to lunch yesterday with an Arminian friend of mine. You draw the line and not fellowship with him? Of course not. No. We can reason from the scriptures in love, amen? That's how we're to be. So just as some of your friends say, you're not really a reformed because you baptize, um, you don't baptize babies. You don't want to have that attitude with others like our Arminian brothers and sisters. Amen? So let's be an example, which you are, by the way. Paul writes in Romans 9, 16, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has what? Mercy. It's not grace plus works, and it's not works plus grace. It's grace, what? Alone. The human will is subject to slavery. And unless God frees that nature, you have no ability to willfully follow God. It is by God's grace alone that one is saved. So salvation is not ultimately based on, I think we can declare this powerfully, it's not based on some manner of human effort. It's entirely based upon the mercy of God. Getting what you don't deserve. Or not getting what you deserve, that's mercy. Not getting what you deserve. Listen to John 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, who gave, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh. Okay, let me read it again. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Born of God. That is, belief generated by the sovereign action of God making us children of God. Well, aren't we all God's children? No. In a creative sense, yes. In a salvific sense, no. You must be adopted in by way of sovereign what? Grace. 
Think about your friends that are, if you're having trouble with this, think about this. You have friends that are lost. They don't believe. Where do you go to because of the grief in your heart over them? Why? You go to prayer. Why? (laughs) Because he's the only one that can save him. That's it. You can talk them into something. If you can, they can talk themselves out of it eventually. I got news of a friend of mine yesterday who lived with me. I discipled. He was in ministry. And in 2010, he was on a high-speed chase running from the police with a gun in his car. He gets out of the car with the gun, and they shoot him. And he's still alive. I went to visit him in the hospital, 2010. Now I just found out that this guy stabbed two people in July in Carlsbad. Is this guy saved or not? I don't know. I don't know. Talked like it. Confessed like it. Went to church like it. Served in ministry like it. But is he like it? It doesn't look like it. (laughs) But he could be. If he has the spirit of God, he is one of the most miserable Christians there are. And I call that some pretty heavy divine chastening for which he better repent. I haven't seen him. I, don't, I tried to look him up. I have no idea where he is, but just found that out yesterday. So we're adopted in. Grace comes from outside of ourselves, friends. That's the point. There is nothing in you that is good enough to save you. Grace comes from entirely outside of us. The gospel comes down to us, not from within us. Never look with inside yourself to find something good. Even as a believer, it's constantly coming to us. Amen? That's why you have to preach the gospel to yourself. That's why the gospel should never get old with believers. The gospel isn't merely for those who aren't saved. It's for us to this day until we die. Salvation is God's divine favor bestowed upon the one that the Father has given him. be redeemed and given back to the Father. Amen? So it comes down from the one whose grace alone, and the one whose grace alone is God alone. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and here it is, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's not complicated. That's clear. Anyone whom Jesus chooses to reveal him. So faith comes from the object of faith himself, and he alone bestows grace to believe, revealing the Father. Now, many of my Arminian believing friends, who I love, fail to see that truth in Ephesians 2. Let's read it again. A little redundant? Paul's redundant, I'm redundant. Look at it. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this, this what? Faith is not your own doing. It is the what? Gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
Okay, we, in other words, we do not even contribute the faith to believe. Faith is a gift. There's one thing you do contribute. Your sin. That's it. Your sin. From which you need to be redeemed. That's it. Every aspect of salvation is gifted to us, coming down from outside of us, including this faith. Election, the effectual call, the new birth, faith to believe, none of it comes from inside of us. It's gifted to us. Paul emphasizes this yet again in Romans 11, verse 5. So too. At the present time, there's a remnant chosen by, word of the hour, grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's grace, beloved, because grace is given to us, faith is given to us to believe while we're still at war with God. Still, we were dead. He brought us to life. Whether you were born again when you were 8 or 18 or 80, it's no less the divine work of God. You see, the flower of grace, that beautiful flower of grace, wilts anytime we attempt to add anything to it, including my faith to believe, my choice, my free will. Your will wasn't free. Again, it was subject to your nature that he transformed and he freed you. Amen? This is how we explain this to our beloved friends who believe in a synergistic salvation. Part God, part me. Even Billy Graham, who I watch on Saturday nights. I try to watch him on Saturday night. They do those reruns. Man, I think that brother was a powerful preacher. and I, I get charged up every time. You must believe. It's Christ. <laughs> Love it. But he used to say something that was ridiculous. It was something like this. God does 99.9 whatever percent of the work, and we have to do that 0.1 whatever percent to believe. It's wrong. Why do I, when I preach, or why does any preacher worth his weight say, repent and believe? Because it's the authority of Scripture, by the power of the Spirit, declaring that truth. And if God has chose to save some within earshot, He will take that word, He will take that command, implement it to their heart, transform them, transform them where they actually will repent and what? Believe. So you preach, repent and believe. As I will today, probably. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the words of Christ. The word of God. Okay, then we ask, well, where do works come in then? With regard to salvation, they don't. Okay? They don't. Salvation is totally by God's grace. Then some fool will say, well, if works don't matter, then let's go on to sin all the more so God's grace may abound more and more. What was Paul's response? Certainly not. If they don't save us, what good are they? Verse 10. 
We are his workmanship. Notice the next word. Created. In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would what? Walk in them. So in other words, works in no way factor as a means or a cause for our salvation, but are the product or the result of salvation, which is solely birthed by God. And then from out of this life comes works or a life that rightly represents the one who saved us. In other words, we were created and recreated, born again, born from above, for the sake of God's glory. Ultimately, your salvation, you've heard me say it a hundred times, is for the glory of God. You being saved is simply a means to his end. And that is his glory. The glory due his name. And walking in obedience or doing works that rightfully represent our Savior, provides God with what? As though he needs anything. The glory do his name, that ascribed glory. Remember the difference between ascribed glory and intrinsic glory? There's nothing you or I can or can't do or won't do that removes or takes away the intrinsic glory of God. That is glory he has in and of himself. He doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. Ascribed glory is the glory do his name. We gather today for the sake of the ascribed glory of God. Lifting up glory due to his name. As we worship, as we walk, as we live for his glory. That's why we were created. That's why we were born again for the glory of God. Enabled by God to do God's will, resulting in the glory of his name. To close, one quote. The one from whom we needed to be saved is the one who saves us. Amen? Sola gratia. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your abounding mercy, your abundant grace that you have lavishly poured upon us, granting us the ability to believe. Lord, may we embrace this truth. May we grow in a deeper knowledge and understanding of this truth. May we be loving and careful how we proclaim this truth to those who, like us, at one time didn't get it. Lord, always for your glory we pray in Jesus' name.